0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 381.
0: Jiminy Cricket says, let your conscience be your guide, it's not always the easiest road to take, but it often is the one that leads to the most tranquility in your life.
1: A fast-track colleague elbowing their way up the corporate ladder in your organization is faking their sales reports. Your entrepreneur boss asks you to lie to would-be investors. The team leader is a serial sexual harasser. What should you do? Nobody prepared you for this part of professional life you face a gut-wrenching choice. Go along to get along or risk your job by speaking up for what you know is right. Hi there, thanks for being here. I'm Jeff and this is the Read to Lead podcast, a podcast that is dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I believe that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading is gotta be a part of your overall plan. So to that end, each week I'm joined by a successful and inspiring author and we dig into his or her book, being sure to pass along to you the key insights and main ideas from that book as well as their insights on things like personal and professional growth, leadership, productivity, career, business and more. Today, we're joined by a professor from the Wharton School who last joined us way back in episode 8. That takes us back to 2013. His name is G Richard Shell and he's author of the new book The Conscience Code. Lead with your values, advance your career. I'm going to ask Richard to share about the four stage values to action process, the three emotions that play key roles in ethical conflicts. We'll discuss some of the 10 conscience code rules and plenty more. Before I introduce Richard, I want to let you know that I am putting together a book launch team right now to help get the word out about my upcoming book, Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. And I would love for you to be a part of that launch team. Now, there are only so many slots available, so there's a very simple application that you fill out to be considered. But here's the gist of it. Here's what you get when you join the launch team. You get access to a private online community where you can engage with me and my co-author, Jesse, and other people passionate about our message. You get a PDF copy of Read to Lead. You get a physical copy of Read to Lead while they last. And you get a special insider invitation to a 90-minute private virtual workshop with me and Jesse to help you implement the book's concepts, maybe start your own book club at work, create a reading culture around you, lots more. That's what you get access to when you join the launch team. And in exchange for that, we simply ask you to do things like you know read the book before launch day leave a review when it comes out share the book on your social media channels that kind of thing if you'd like to find out more about this and fill out the very simple application all you need to do right now is text the phrase read to lead one word no spaces read to lead to this five digit number 33444 so just text read to lead one word to 33444 and i'll quickly shoot you an email with a link to the application It'll take you less than two minutes to fill it out. It's real simple. And that's all we need to consider you for the Read to Lead book launch team. Again, that's Read to Lead to 33444. And by the way, if you need more information about the book, that address is readtoleadbook.com. Make sure you're pre-ordering yours today. Get 40% off when you do and get $500 in free resources that address again read to g richard shell is chair of the wharton school's legal studies and business ethics department his books on negotiation influence and success have sold over half a million copies in 17 languages and his online course on success has reached tens of thousands of people around the world. An award-winning teacher and scholar, Richard led the most recent redesign of the Wharton School's MBA curriculum and helped create its Required Responsibility in Business course. He also directs week-long workshops on negotiation and strategic persuasion for senior executives. Well, I've read several of his books, and his latest is one I highly recommend. It's called The Conscience Code, Lead with Values, Advance Your Career, and I'm excited to have him back. Uh, Richard, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast.
0: Jeff, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it.
1: It's been a long time, way back in 2013, I think around September, about 12 episodes into the podcast, uh, Richard made his first visit. I'll link to that interview and that book in the show notes. And it's been too long. Uh, We we need to meet up more regularly than this.
0: I uh, I guess I need to write more books. uh, (laughs) Get back on your show. Great opportunity to reconnect.
1: Likewise. Yeah, I I, I agree. I'm so glad to have you here. Uh, Let's first uh, dig into uh, what led to the writing of this book. If we can share some of the um, surprise lessons, I think, that your students taught you about, about some of their ethical challenges.
0: Sure. Thanks, Jeff. Most academics write books about their research. They do the research, then they write the book. I'm unusual. I teach a course, and then I write a book. <laughs> uh, and the, every, every book I've written has come from a course that I've developed, taught, and done research for to make it compelling for students. And the, um, uh, so this book comes from a course that I t- began teaching about 10 years ago called Responsibility. It's a required course for MBAs at the Wharton School. I teach it twice a year. And, you know, that, that it combined two courses into one. And one course was separate on business ethics and the other course was separate on business law. Mm. And in a redesign of the curriculum, which I happen to also lead at the Wharton School, um, we decided to bring these into a kind of basket where we could talk about personal responsibility instead of ethics or law. And I thought that was a, a much more uh, creative, friendly way to talk about some really important topics that are more aligned with leadership as an aspiration than it let's be a good person or let's obey the law. Because uh, everybody thinks they're a good person and nobody really wants to break the law as an intention unless you're a psychopath or a criminal. And we're trying to fold this into the student self-concept. What what I was amazed by when I began teaching this was I structured a session and the session was bring the moral conflicts that you faced in your prior job, because our students are 28 to 35. And let's talk about, you know, what you've been asked to do or uh, what you've fallen into doing. And, you know, give me a success story where you uh, were challenged in your values and you stood up for them and a challenge story where you fell short now that you look back on it. And what shocked and amazed me was what these students had been asked to do In their prior jobs and, you know, out of college and the stories. I mean, everybody, you know, talks about ethics and, you know, you think about large corporate scandals and, you know, people going to jail for fraud and stuff like that. But this wasn't any of that. I had a couple of stories of my mortgage fraud, uh, but these were, uh, students who had been sexually assaulted by clients. Mm. Uh, they had been. Uh, asked to create fraudulent websites to trick investors into investing in startups. Uh, They were people who worked in private equity who were told to backdate documents to make it appear that due diligence had been done that hadn't been done. Mm. Uh, Valuations of companies in private equity were delayed during fundraising rounds so that the new investors would see higher values in the portfolio. And as soon as the money was raised, they devalued the companies which they knew didn't have the value that was on the book. And more interesting even than that, I thought, was that quite a number of students, I couldn't ever get a number on it, but many more than I'd ever expected, really fell into a category of people I came to call ethics refugees. They were people who, good people, gone into their first career, found themselves in a swamp of one kind or another, whether it was a sexist swamp or a ethical swamp or a fraudulent swamp. And we're using the MBA application process and the decision to go get an MBA as a sort of opportunity to get to higher ground where they could then take a new navigational waypoint on their career and try to find work that would more align with their values. Not necessarily, you know, go to work for the you know, for for the Global Hunger Foundation, some people are, you know, interested in pivoting line that way, go to a higher purpose maybe in their work. But this was just go find and pay better attention when they're recruiting and doing their internships to the moral tone of the team they work for and the culture in the firm that they work for, so that they wouldn't feel the sort of alienation from themselves. And they'd be able to feel good about themselves when they went home and not feel that they were, as I've come to call it, if you want to get sick, swim in a dirty pond. And these uh, students, in a larger number than I would have expected, had been subjected to essentially a polluted pond, and they were trying to swim out of it. That, That was the shock and amazement the degree of that at the at the sort of middle ranks of the firm, middle, lower ranks of the management firm. So they weren't scandals. They didn't show up in the paper, but they were very common. And then the the need that prompted the book was uh, a woman, this happened more than once, but the, most recently I was just speaking with this student who graduated about eight years ago. And this woman had been in the fashion industry, her dream job at a college, and she had had a client uh, at a client dinner, put his hand up her skirt under the table. She had, of course, you know, brushed it away and then it returned. And then she got up and went to the ladies room and came back and it returned a, th- uh, a third time. Wow. And then she got up and she went to the other side of the table and asked to switch seats with somebody else. Now, you know, there was no doubt about in her mind that she wasn't going to. Succumbed to this. It was offensive and it was a sexual assault. I mean, she was touched in a way that was inappropriate and repugnant. What she though then said in class was, I really didn't know what to do about it. Should I report it? This is a very important client. And so there was this sense that she lacked the sort of organizational savvy tools, courage, I don't know what the word would be, to take it forward and to actually feel like she'd taken corrective action uh, to stop this behavior in this person and feel better about herself for having stood up to him. So that, I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So I know a lot about organizational politics. I wrote a book on persuasion. I wrote a book on, I know what meaningful work looks like. That's the book you and I talked about last time. And what I hadn't put in that book was, okay, how do you stand up for your values and what are your options and what's a process you can follow that will uh, solve this woman's problem. So she could be standing in class that day. Instead of saying that, she would have said, and then I, and I feel good about how I handled it. So that's really the motivating premise and the reason that the book is not just, uh, here's the right thing to do and corporations should be more socially responsible and all the things that are, there are lots of books about it, and they're fine. Mine is, how do you handle conflicts that are difficult in organizational settings? Where it's not a whistleblower situation where you're gonna, you know, like leave the firm and, and, and go to the New York Times. It's just this retail uh, set of behaviors that are offensive to you. How do you stand up to them effectively so that you go home with your head high?
1: The the whistleblower term is the term the media is fond of using, but I like how you laid out. It's really more than about just whistleblowing, right?
0: Absolutely. I, I, I found a term that I really appeals to me. and It's actually, ironically, a whistleblower that coined it. Uh, mm-hmm. Jeffrey Wygan was, uh, back in the day, the guy who sort of blew the whistle on the tobacco industry. He was a scientist at uh, one of the big tobacco companies. He was charged to create a safe cigarette. His project was killed when the firm realized that By trying to create a safe cigarette, they were admitting that they were had harmful ones. (laughs) And so he had a long journey and was retaliated against strongly by the tobacco industry. But he said the term whistleblower has a kind of set of pejorative implications. It sounds like you're a snitch. It sounds like the only things that count are these huge corporate scandals or public health scandals. And he preferred a term which I endorse and put in the book called person of conscience. And we all know people of conscience in our lives. They may be a mentor that guided us early in our career. They may be a relative, a grandmother, a grandfather, someone we honor for the fact that they put their values in a high place in their priorities and they live their lives that way. Few of us know too many whistleblowers. And I think that the the action in day-to-day working life is, are you a person of conscience? And then most people would say, yeah. And then, then the question is, okay, well, what would a person of conscience do in this situation? And that sort of calls the question of who you are and making sure your actions align with your values. And then be skillful about it. I think I'm not advocating everybody get up on top of the Empire State Building and scream, I'm offended. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking, how can you be effective at um, – Standing for your values, speaking up for your values, and taking corrective action that will work and that will not subject you to unnecessary career risk or expose you to retaliation. And I think there are a lot of ways, many of them similar to what happens when you have a disagreement about other things. Maybe it's a disagreement over strategy with a boss who's sort of an egoist. That's not a moral conflict. It's just a disagreement about what to do, and people can have reasonable differences. But you still have to have good conflict management skills, dialogue skills. Uh, You have to share perceptions of how you see it to try to find out what their perceptions are so you can see how they see it. And these conflicts over values have that character and the same tools can be used to approach them. It's just that the stakes are higher for you and your identity as a person of conscience.
1: Well, Richard uh, walks us through in the book uh, these, these 10 conscious code rules, and we're going to get to some of those in a moment. First, let's talk about sort of the, the overall framework, Richard, this uh, four-stage values-to-action process that each of these 10 fit into.
0: Yeah, I think, I think one of the reasons that my student had a problem with, well, what do I do, was she lacked a model in her head as to what the steps were that sh- someone should go through. To move the needle. So I, you know, I've actually updated my, my uh, acronym for this. And I have, uh, uh, I I came across a, a wonderful metaphor for how combat pilots make adjustments in aerial combat to take into account adjusting new circumstances. The concept, you can actually Wikipedia this. It's called the ODA loop. O O D A loop. And a values to action process is just like that. So the first O stands for observe. So the first thing you have to do is take a note that there is a values conflict. Now, my student who had her client's hand up her dress didn't have any problem understanding there was a values conflict there. But often it's more subtle. Uh, Often something's happening at your peripheral vision and you're aware that maybe there's a misleading report going out to a client, but it's the, the boss managing a team next to yours And so there's this sense of, well, is this really a values conflict? So you first have to observe that it is and and recognize that. And there's some systemic biases that allow us to overlook things. There's a wonderful YouTube video called The Invisible Gorilla. And I wouldn't be surprised if you've had an author that's talked about this before in your podcast.
1: I don't think so. I've seen the video, but I don't think anybody's talked about it. Okay.
0: Well, The Invisible Gorilla is uh, some research done by some other business school professors, and they created an experiment where they... They had a group of students in front of an elevator bank, uh, some group, five in white, dressed in white, five dressed in black, and they were passing a basketball around. And the job of the observer is to count the number of times that the white team catches the ball during the video. So you're focused on this white team and catching the ball. And in the middle of this, a guy dressed in a gorilla outfit comes out, stands in the middle of this group passing the basketball, pounds their chest, and then walks off the other side. And about 75% of people who are watching this video never see the gorilla because their focus is on the white team catching the ball. And they've been told, you know, women are better than men at counting the right number. And so they're they're all <laughs> like framed around this problem. And values conflicts can be like that. If you're focused on competitive goals, if you're focused on winning a negotiation, if you're focused on meeting your quota, whatever it is, uh, you can simply miss The invisible gorilla of the values conflict that actually embedded in here is a great big huge fraud on a client or a conflict of interest between you and a supplier. And you just don't see it. So observe is first. The second O is own. So now it's not just that you see there's a problem, you make it your problem. And owning an ethical or a values dilemma is the hugest step, I think. Because then then you're going to take responsibility for it. It's going to be your problem. And there are lots of things that keep us from owning our conflicts, one of which is you have a conflict-averse personality, and so your mind immediately kicks into rationalization mode uh, that, well, it's above my pay grade, it's someone else's problem, Uh, everybody does it, it's not really an issue. And so At the ownership level, we confront our own sort of impulses to avoid things. So that second step is own it. And that's where my student stopped. She didn't own this problem. Uh, She experienced it and she maneuvered around it, but she didn't own it. So then the third step, the OODA, is decide what the options are for taking action. Uh, And this could be go speak to a mentor about it and get some advice. It could be report it to HR. It could be uh, talk to some other people in the office. Have you had this problem with this person before? And it could be, you know, go directly to the person and share your perception that this was, in, you know, improper, but you'd like to hear their point of view. Maybe they just didn't see it, you know? They had an invisible gorilla moment too. It, it's surprising how often we attribute bad character to other people just because their actions fall short. But actually, their intentions weren't bad. So if you can bring that dialogue to another person, they may actually thank you for helping them see the issue. Hmm. And then you made an ally, and actually, your reputation as a leader is going to go up. So that's decide what your options are. And then finally, the A is take action. So then you just you do whatever you you think the best option is. And then the loop is see what happens and make adjustments and get ready to start the outer loop again because these office moments often have an iterative quality, and the first step may not be the last step. And so there could be the need to have a follow-up or to go with the person and talk to a third person or to have some sort of process ensue that will get more input, that will begin to change the values on the way the team operates or uh, get some consensus around what the right way to do business is. So, OtoLoop. Observe, own, decide, act, uh, adjust the loop.
1: There's um, uh, something that comes up again and again in the book that I want you to sort of unpack if you don't mind. And I'm talking about the three emotions that you believe play key roles in, in ethical conflicts. Sure.
0: There's a, a kind of um, frame I put around this, the positive role of negative emotions mm. in values conflicts. Negative emotions basically are things we avoid uh, because, or we are upset when we have them because they're not positive. And, and, you know, a lot of research on how good positive emotions are, you know, it's happiness and sense of well-being and awe, and those are wonderful things. But when it comes to value conflicts, the negative emotions are signals, and you should be attentive when these emotions come up because mm-hmm. they're generally like little canaries in the coal mine of your conscience that's... Warning you, you know danger, danger, you might have to do something here that's going to be uncomfortable or that causes some awkwardness or a conflict, so the the three emotions I talk about in the book are anger, and you know anger is what bully bosses have a problem with. you know mm-hmm. they, they have anger management classes for these people, but anger, when it's prompted by a moral violation or by a sense of injustice is actually a creative and useful motivation to channel toward corrective action. Um, I talked about uh, a number of different companies recently have actually had employees rally into coalitions based on their anger at the firm's sexual harassment policy and they've uh, Google they had a big walkout a day when they walked out a few mm-hmm. years ago all over the world because high level executive had gotten a $90 million bonus for and left the firm but it was a convicted sexual harasser and everybody knew it Uh, And they wanted uh, the firm to take a stronger stand. And they were angry. They were angry about that. Another firm called Wayfair got upset during the Trump administration because their firm was selling furniture to help create places along the southern border where they were going to put children, unaccompanied children, and keep them there away from their parents. And the the employees there felt that was morally wrong and that the firm shouldn't be putting its name on projects that they felt were morally wrong. And they did walk out too. But they were angry about it. So, so you don't have to have a rally because you're angry, but the anger does send a signal that you've been your sense of justice or what, or right and wrong has been violated and you're angry and you'd like it to see it corrected. So channel the anger. And then the other two are guilt and shame. And you know, people have to go to therapy if they are compulsively feeling guilty and have trouble functioning or that they are crippled by shame or the fear of shame that they feel. But when it comes to values conflicts, if you anticipate that taking this action or failing to take this action is likely to make you feel quite guilty, or if it's revealed, might make you ashamed of yourself, then you have to weigh that in your decision calculus as to what to do and say, well, this is going to be awkward to handle this and turn to this conflict. But the pain I'm going to feel if I don't, by virtue of my conscience haunting me with guilt or my sense of shame troubling me if it's revealed that I didn't do anything. That's something that I fear even more than I fear the awkwardness of phasing into it. And so the cost-benefit analysis emotionally sometimes will tip in favor of taking action that will avoid the guilt and shame in the future. And that's why those two emotions are very powerful. Again, all of them are triggered to your conscience. When Jimmy Cricket says, let your conscience be your guide, It's not always the easiest road to take to let your conscience be your guide, but it often is the one that leads to the most tranquility in your life because you are taking actions and your conscience is clear. And so your confidence, your ability to step up next time, you've sort of reinforced the better side of your nature by virtue of having chosen the right way. Mm.
1: Well, Richard tells some fascinating true stories in the book of how situational forces can, can override our values. This, this to me was, I mean, it can be, it can be haunting <laughs> uh, to think about, but describe what you call the, the pairs pressures. Sure. Uh, this
0: was one of the most important sort of framing devices I came up with when I began to create this course on Responsibility. Because I think people tend to take ethics and say, well, you're either a good person or a bad person, and good people behave ethically and bad people behave unethically and so our problem is just how do we how do we uh attack the bad people and uh, I'm a good person, so I know which team i'm on and actually, all of us have within us good angels and bad angels we all have impulses to run and hide when we're in a fearful state. We have impulses to burnish our own egos or to take credit for things or to feel important. And those can be very useful, channeled in the right way, but they can also lead us into bad behavior. And on the good side, we have our intentions to behave and be the people that uh, our parents wanted us to be and that we're proud of. So I captured these five pressures with an acronym, P-A-I-R-S, You notice there are a few acronyms in the book, but I found for when you're a teacher, (laughs) it helps to have something easy to remember, uh, in order to actually, you know, use these tools. So the five pressures are peer pressure. That's P very powerful. Everybody does it is a huge rationalization. And when you see you're in a a college student and all your classmates are cheating and it feels like you're a sucker if you don't. And the peer pressure to go along with a crowd and to cut the corner can be overwhelming sometimes. Same for bad business practices that happen to be common in an industry. So peer pressure, A for authority pressure. So that's when the boss says, do it, we have a deadline, I take it for the team. I'm, you know, it's my responsibility. You do it. And so authority pressure, very powerful. And both peer and authority pressure, really well researched social psychological experiments to show mm-hmm. just how how good people a lot of experiments have to do with like Nazi Germany, where otherwise good people in uh, a functioning society were brought to be the people complicit in in Hitler's Nazi Germany. How did that happen? Authority pressure, peer pressure, uh, PAI, the uh, the pressure of incentives. So you know you can kill uh, a, a really good team with high valued people by giving them impossible goals, impossible deadlines, and a huge amount of pressure to hit those deadlines in order to get paid. And people have a way of talking themselves into thinking, well, it's just this once. Uh, Nobody will notice. We just have to meet this quota. The power of incentives, very, very perverse. I, I last In the last couple of weeks, I was finishing up my course, and this one student told a story that was classic in this regard. They worked for a call center, and they were new at the job. And the call center had a quota, a weekly quota for completed calls. A call takes a minute. They they connect with a cold call, connect with a person on the other end. They get them on, keep them on the phone for a minute. Well, this guy wasn't very good at it. And they had a whiteboard and they put his name in red on the whiteboard in front of the whole team in the call center for not making quota. Mm. So during lunch, uh, one of his mates came up to him and said, you know, I can get your name off the whiteboard. And he said, well, what do I have to do? He said, well, we're all in on this. So I'll tell you, we figured a hack out. And the call center monitoring system, you know, just has this system where they record whether the office phone has been connected with another number for a minute. Uh, so we're just calling each other on our cell phones and mm-hmm. keeping the call going for a minute. And then we make sure we have enough to meet the quota. And then after that, we go to work. And, I, and he said, well, sounds wow. good. Uh, so off his name came from the red board. But the incentives had created essentially a complete conspiracy to defeat the company's goals because they were shaming people. Uh, with these unreasonable incentives. So that's mm-hmm. that. Then the role you play is R. Uh, you know, it's not your job category, not your responsibility. Keep your head down. And that can easily be a pressure to sort of minimize the values and your voice. And then finally, S is for systems. And these are large corruption kind of systems like global corruption, bribery, sexism, racism, where you experience it and you just are just overwhelmed and there's nothing I can do. It's too big a problem. And so you disable yourself by virtue of this being a systemic pressure. So those are the five, and all of them can prompt good people to do bad things. And that's really the important thing. You have to be on your guard and you have to be able to resist these pressures and talk back to them.
1: Uh, You mentioned a couple of times in the book uh, one of my favorite quotes from Jim Rohn You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. What's meant by the power of two and social contagion? I, I mean, we're social creatures. And so uh, anytime you have a
0: values conflict at work, you're going to experience it in a kind of social way. And one of the dangers for people of conscience is that they think they have to do it alone. And I think, again, going back to my student who'd been assaulted by the client, she she approached the problem as, what do I have to do? Her first step ought to have been, who can I talk with about this? And the power of two is just the impulse to bring someone else into the problem with you to help you own it. Uh, now, the first step may be talking to somebody outside the firm at home or a friend or calling a trusted mentor from another job. Something, just get it outside yourself. So you have the another voice, another set of perceptions, a counselor, a trusted partner. Then you can build on that. So... Uh, so then once you have the power of two working for you, then there may be other people to consult. There may be a coalition to be formed. There may be a process where several people go to HR and say, this person is a problem, which is a much more powerful place to go than just you alone. And they say, well, are you sure? And did it really happen? And here we have three people sitting and saying, yes, it happened. It happened to me. It happened to me. It happened to me. So now it becomes harder to just sort of dismiss. The social contagion is how easy it is in an office for bad behavior to become the norm. Mm. Social contagion is our our sort of sense as social creatures to pick up on the emotions and the signals other people are sending and it just turns out that vice is much more contagious than virtue is. And so in an office someone who's behaving badly is very likely to have that behavior spread more quickly. Uh, than good behavior is, which requires a lot more kind of intention and reinforcement, so it's just a, another reason why the power of two is so important because you're going to be spreading virtue here, and it's going to take a little bit more of a push than uh, the person is having to exert who's spreading the vice so that's that's the the connection there uh, but there's just myriad examples of uh Two people taking down you know, a very large problem, uh, the Theranos case recently that's uh, it's still in the news. Elizabeth Holmes is going to be mm-hmm. on trial this summer. Uh, two young people, both 23 years old, uh, found each other. They both looked at each other and said, do you see what I see? And they both said, yes, we see what you see. And so now they both had a shared reality about the firm actually faking results and lying to regulators. And uh, ultimately, they quit because they tried to work internal processes and they weren't successful. But their partnership and their reinforcement of each other's values and perceptions was really what powered them to their success.
1: Richard, you mentioned anxiety. Um, Speak to the importance of self-awareness and understanding regarding just how anxious conflict can, can be for people.
0: Yeah, I, this is really important. I think I think people kind of overlook this sometimes. When you talk about conflicts over values, and you notice, I'm trying to avoid the word ethics. Have you noticed
1: that? <laughs> <laughs> I have, yeah.
0: <laughs> because I think ethics presumes a kind of right and wrong, and and the answer is really clear when it's ethical, when it's uneth- unethical. And I think most situations actually in the real world on the day-to-day scale are about values and perceptions, and uh, and there's there's room to discuss them which is why i keep coming back to that but part of what's going on is not just that you have values and you think they're being violated but you may have a personality that is challenged by interpersonal conflict even if the conflict is just a negotiations you know if you're if you're uneasy about negotiating for a salary raise Well, you're going to be even more uneasy about having a values conflict with a peer or a boss, but it's the same underlying anxiety about conflict that's the issue. So actually in the book, I have some assessments and one of the assessments, the one about conflicts is actually up on the web. It's available for people to take for free uh, on the publisher's website for the Conscience Code, uh, HarperCollins Leadership Essentials. And I think it's useful. Some people are avoiders. Some people are advocates. Some people are problem solvers. This assessment helps you kind of diagnose where your uh, emotional priors are. And then depending on, on that, you have a different strategic set of options. Because this trusted partner I keep coming back to, if you're someone who just is just terrified by interpersonal conflict, your first step is to find somebody who's a little more fearless. Uh, a little less concerned about just the disagreement part of what's going on that can counsel you or might even be your champion or could come with you and help complement your sense uh, of conflict aversion. But even people who tend to avoid conflict tend to be very skilled at indirect ways of managing organizational strategy. They tend to be very tactful, diplomatic, and uh, they can actually Mm -hmm. be really good counselors themselves in finessing a difference so that the right thing gets done without causing the waves. And that's, I always think, you know, the best option around most of these is to find a way to get the right thing done uh, without having any kind of uh a nuclear device go off.
1: <laughs> well, Richard, uh, we've got bounced around the rules here a little bit. Uh, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you, not directly related to the book. But before I do, is there anything I didn't ask about that you want to make sure we we know?
0: Uh, no, I think you know it's been a wonderful conversation. I, I guess I would just reiterate the two things that have probably come up the most, and that is, think of yourself as a person of conscience, and ask yourself what would a person of conscience do in this situation. That really triggers the right identity issue. And then look for a trusted partner to share the problem with so you can own it and not own it alone. So those are really the two starter kit things that I would urge everyone to consider.
1: Uh, one thing I enjoy about reading books is uh, oftentimes the books within the book that the author recommends that was a part of their research, et cetera. Uh, give us a, a bit of insight into your history, Richard, with, with reading and the impact that books have had on, on your life. How has the habit of reading with intention and consistently played a role, would you say, uh, in, your, in your success?
0: Oh, It's, well, I mean, I'm an academic, so I chose a career where I get to pay to write books and paid to read them. So, you know, for a love, a lover of books, uh, come, come join me. I think of reading not as reading. I think of reading as spending time with the author. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like you invite them to sit down with you and share coffee. And so then the question is who you want to invite to talk with you over your coffee Mm -hmm. and books have. You know, you can go all the way from Aristotle to have coffee with to Adam Grant to have coffee with, my colleague at Wharton, who's a wonderful Mm -hmm. author. And so I like to think of my books as my friends. And I actually studied poetry when I was in college. I was uh, tutored by Anthony Burgess, the novelist who wrote Clockwork Orange. Oh, wow. Uh, I wrote verse dramas under his direction. Based on James Joyce short stories. So I'm, I'm a, I, I, I see Shakespeare as often as possible. Uh, mm-hmm. And I actually have a habit uh, that I would recommend to some of your listeners because they're listening to a podcast and it may work for them. I do a lot of my reading on audiobooks because I love to hear the book. And I think a lot of books are meant to be heard in this way. So I'm an auditory person, I think, when it comes to learning. So I have a cue of books I listen to and they're the people I spend time with. So I even, I listen to books when I'm uh, walking. I listen to books when I'm driving, as long as I'm in a safe place and the people I like to spend time with range. Uh, you know, Aristotle had three types of friends. And since books are my friends, uh, the three types of friends are friends of pleasure, friends of utility and friends of virtue. So. For pleasure, I read Louise Penny and listen to her mysteries or to uh, other authors that uh, are fiction, uh, Charles Dickens. For utility, I read people like Angela Duckworth and Adam Grant. And hopefully, uh, some people may read some of my books, which are books to help people solve problems, uh, negotiation, influence, persuasion, success. And then they're friends of virtue. And um, this is where I think you ask yourself, what are the books I can read that might give me insights into how to be a better person or how to be the person I want to be? And that's where I find it's very useful to listen to Marcus Aurelius uh, about stoic philosophy or to listen to uh, Homer. And I, I listen to the Iliad and the Odyssey. Once every couple of years, there's a new translation every couple of years, so that helps. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these these are the kinds of minds that had the big picture and had the whole picture. And when you sit with them and let them share while you're having your coffee, you get richer. And everything about my life has improved continuously by virtue of having the vocabulary, the ideas the intuitions, the imaginations of these great people uh, that have just sunk into my subconscious and enable me to speak more clearly, tell better stories, uh, have better ideas. So reading, really important.
1: Hmm. Now, I hear from Marcus Aurelius a few times a week uh, as I sit down every morning with uh, The Daily Stoic from Ryan Holiday. I don't know if you yeah. check that out, but uh, I highly recommend that. Yeah, it's a great book. Well, what would you say is ahead for you and your team that you're excited about and, and are able to share? Uh, first of all, no team, just me. Uh, <laughs> so,
0: you know, some, some people, Adam has, Adam Graham, my friend, has a, a social media team and a research <laughs> team. It's like, like Malcolm Gladwell or something. But I just have a team of one, my spouse, who I've known since college when we met at a Grateful Dead concert, and she's an editor. <laughs> and so everything I write, She reads and won't let out the door until she understands it. And, uh, she writes too. She's an essayist for the Wall Street Journal and I, uh, am her harshest critic. So we make a team in that way. Now, my next project is actually another book, uh, surprisingly. And I I have an idea, you know, people are stuck in their beliefs these days. You know, you get people polarized and, you know, I believe in getting vaccinated. I don't believe in getting vaccinated. I believe in UFOs. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in UFOs. I believe in QAnon. You know, QAnon's a cult. And uh, I want to write a book. It's going to have 10 chapters and it's going to have 10 examples of people escaping their own beliefs. How did it come to pass that a person who was thoroughly immersed in a belief system, whatever it was, how did they escape that? And I know because I've written about persuasion that it's very seldom the case that someone else talked them out of it. So, but nevertheless, people do escape from these rabbit holes. And so I'm interested in doing 10 case studies of 10 important dimensions of belief systems that are in the culture that we have today, and just track what we can learn from how people came out of the rabbit holes that they got stuck in, and then see if there's some patterns there.
1: Sounds like a fascinating book. I'm anticipating it already, so (laughs) be sure and let me know when it comes out so we can have you back on the show again. Jeff, a three
0: for it. That would be great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, this current book, again, is called The Conscience Code. Lead with values, advance your career. G. Richard Shell is his name. Look him up. You'll be glad that you did. Check this book out. And again, I'll link to his previous books, including that interview that we did several years ago. Richard, thank you so much for coming on the show again. I appreciated your insights and all you had to share today.
0: Jeff, it's a great pleasure and appreciate you having me. Take care.
1: I love that idea of categorizing your reading from pleasure to utility to virtue. Well, if you want to find out more about Richard, I've got all the details on the show notes page. I also linked to that assessment that he talked about. You can find that, the other links and resources he and I talked about and ways to connect with Richard all at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 381 for episode 381. Hey, again, I'd love to have you on my book launch team. If you'd like to fill out the very simple, short application to be considered, text the phrase read to lead one word to 33444. And I'll send you an email that includes a link to the application. Again, that's read to lead to 33444. And whether you wanna be on the launch team or not, I hope you will check out the book called Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career find out all about it, get 40% off and receive $500 in additional resources when you go to readtoleadbook.com. That's readtoleadbook.com. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, as always, remember leaders read and readers lead.